Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, has Donald Trump already moved on from Tuesday's midterms? Sure feels like it. Plus, a few lessons to learn from Tuesday in addition to what we talked about late on Tuesday night and how Democrats will make sense of them in 2020. As usual, remember, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. That's November 8th this week, so it's all up to date as of then. Let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. As always, we have senior politics editor Charlie Montessian here. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Scott. Have you slept at all since uh, election night? About three hours. Yeah, all right. That's good. That's, that's enough to function on, on a podcast such as this one. And also in the studio, we have one of the members of Politico's White House team, Chris Catalago. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you. All right. Let's jump right in. Time for our first data point, two. There are now two top-level jobs in President Donald Trump's administration that he needs to fill. Uh, before the election, of course, we had U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley uh, leaving. And yesterday, the president said Attorney General Jeff Sessions was out. So, Chris, since Tuesday's midterms, the president has sacked his attorney general, picked a fight with the media in the East Room of the White House. He's about to head to Paris. There's all sorts of stuff swirling around about the Mueller investigation and, and just about every other thing. Has the president just moved on from from Tuesday night, from the midterms already, after all this anticipation? Yeah, we thought he was going to have to move on because uh, he might have even done a little worse than he ended up doing. In fact, even when he tried to talk about some of the gains uh, that the party made, some of the places where he did have uh, you know, an impact, states like Florida, you can make the argument Ohio, uh, certainly in Georgia, you know, he stepped all over that sort of brief message and just immediately launched into this solo act that we've seen him have after sort of awkwardly playing party leader. Are you talking about the diatribe against House members who lost uh, after uh, refusing, quote, the embrace? Yeah. So Donald Trump basically came out and and by name called out um, a bunch of uh, House members and House candidates who didn't who didn't hug him closely as many of the uh, folks in the Senate did? We had uh, Leader McConnell come out and talk about how he was going to help guard the president against presidential harassment, which is what he's calling um, sort of. And and I think part of this is basically Trump coming to grips with something that he hadn't fully come to grips with, which was uh, divided government and this sort of level of. Um, uh, you know, the level of pain that he's going to be in when um, Democrats start, uh, you know, going after him. It's interesting that you say that, that he hadn't come to grips with this, because this is something obviously we didn't know for sure that the House was going to flip. But this is something that we have been talking about for a while. And but it's the the president has a unique ability to uh, kind of block out I think in his mind, the parts of the country that, that don't like him very much. And you just look at his travel schedule, right? And like where he was before the midterms. And even when he, he did end up visiting three states that he didn't win, but most of the time that he spent in, in those three states was in parts of the state that, that are, love him. 
he still was focusing on this very, very narrow path to keeping the house. Mm -hmm. I mean, when he talked about it, he still seemed to think that that was possible. He hadn't um, dispatched any large number of folks within the White House to start really looking into what it would mean if they lost the House. He talked about it like uh, he thought this could still happen. And so when you say coming to grips, I mean, his view on polls is largely shaped by his own 2016 race. And, you know, he talks about fake polls and, and he, he basically looks at these things as uh, you know, this large undervote and, and people not, you know, these polls not being reflective of these races. So, you know, the fact that some of this was sort of a rude awakening for him, you know, he, he never lost an election. And um, we saw and we've seen in his actions since then that, that uh, this is, you know, th- things are not going to look good for him when you start have a couple dozen Democrats who are running against him, t- cutting into his TV time. And, you know, we're just going to continue to see what it looks like when it's not all on Trump time. Charlie, obviously, that rude awakening is, is coming also in the form of House Democrats who are going to be uh, digging into his trash over, over essentially over, over the next uh, weeks, months, years. Right. But I also think that we're almost beginning this discussion from a, a, a f- some, it's, it's almost as if it's rooted in a flawed assumption, which is the idea that he has any grasp of the political map and, and political dynamics. Um, I mean, I don't think he has any whatsoever. And I, d- I don't mean that, you know, as just sort of a arbitrary criticism. What I mean is he's not somebody who has been steeped in politics his whole life or his career. All he knew was candidates th- that would come up and hit him up with a tin cup for money. And then he runs a single race, real race. And he goes seat of the pants and he wins in an epic upset. So that is his frame of reference. He doesn't know the House map. He doesn't distinguish between districts. He doesn't. He probably doesn't even distinguish that much between the House and the Senate. He probably doesn't understand their different constituencies. And so in his mind, and we also know the way his mind works. We know the way he consumes information. It's highly selective, uh, which is a charitable way of describing it. So in his mind, he wins an epic victory against all odds. What he knows in his mind and how he processes it, we can pretty much assume based on what we know about him, which is that uh, he has defied history. And uh, unlike all of the other loser presidents that uh, were crushed in midterm uh, elections, he won an epic victory by saving the, the Senate for the Republican Party and the losers and malcontents that did not embrace him in the House and didn't have him into the districts, well, they made a big mistake and made their bed and they're going to suffer. And I also agree on the House Democrats. I mean, I don't think he fully has wrapped his arms around just how loathed he is. He kind of gets the idea of the resistance, but I don't think he understands how House Democrats really feel about him. Well, but here, here's something arguing against the the idea that he he doesn't have understanding. We We know that one of Trump's skills is his ability to change the conversation and to or to try and change the direction of things. And so let's talk about Jeff Sessions, right? The big question here is what a new attorney general means for the investigation by Robert Mueller into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And we know that Trump knows that. And we know that that is part of the reason why Sessions left yesterday, the day after this big election result. So Chris, take us through what's going on here. I guess to start off, what what do we know about Sessions' temporary replacement, Matthew Whitaker? So this this is a guy who, you know, in the broadest sense is is a loyalist and a loyalist not like Jeff Sessions was in like every possible sense that you can be, except for the fact that he had recused himself. Um, You know, the one the one area where he broke with Donald Trump was the one area where Trump sort of needed him the most. And um, so you have a, a former uh, in Whitaker, a former college football player, which Trump has mentioned. He he has had 
some former football players on his staff that he tends to like. He likes people kind of in that tough guy mold. Um, this is someone who memes are already being created about uh, doing Olympic weightlifting. Um, he's bald. He 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 has the, uh, the 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 tough edge look to him. He's written op eds already, calling um, you know early in 2017 for the investigation to come to a close, the Mueller investigation. So this is s- someone who has said this thing has gone on way too long. Sees it very much in the same way uh, that Trump does. The question is. Uh, who is he going to bring on to replace Sessions on a full-time basis? And is that person tied in in any way to the investigation where they would have to recuse himself? I mean, that's really the question. There's, the list is long, and we've seen a list uh, includes a whole bunch of names, including Chris Kobach from uh, from Kansas and uh, you know anyone from on the other side, Rudy Giuliani. Of course, he's already worked on that, so so would he have to recuse himself? The, the the politics around around replacing sessions mm-hmm. I mean so we've got we've got Whitaker who's in this mold that Trump likes in there now the loyalist as you mentioned whoever the full-time replacement is going to be is obviously there's going to be a lot of questions about all the stuff that that, that you mentioned regarding Russia and the Mueller probe and, and but at the same time we see you know Republicans have expanded their their Senate majority they could have as many as I I, I think 54. Seats, yeah, Senate two. seats. When by the time this confirmation battle comes up, so the does that give Trump more of a free hand? In I don't terms know of replacing Sessions than it, he would have had before the midterms. In this particular area, it's still going to be tough. I think when it comes to other cabinet replacements, Interior, some of these others that he's looked at, Homeland Security, he, there might there's more wiggle room. Certainly, the Senate. You know, they talked a lot during the campaign about the Senate being important, not only for judges but for cabinet appointments and and other appointments that he might make. The other thing I'd think about when it comes to Sessions' role in particular is can he find someone who's already received Senate confirmation, someone like an Azar, um, who could then slide into that role. And that's the um, Health and Human Services Health Secretary. and Human Services Secretary. And and so they wouldn't have to face sort of a whole redo. Um, that that would definitely smooth out the process if, if he could do that. This is not like an easy job to fill at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of people who... There was talk about Lindsey Graham potentially doing it, but but all along, I think he said, uh, despite this sort of attack dog role that he's embraced, um, he said he'd much rather stay in the Senate, um, especially in the position that he's in right now. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is not going to be an easy uh, uh, thing for him to fill. We know he's we know what he wants. You know, he's talked about. Um, we see the AG role as very much this sort of independent role now, even though people try to make uh, Obama's AG Eric Holder out to be. Um, someone who was uh, who was beholden to him, but you know Trump wants a Bobby Kennedy. Trump has said that he he wants someone who is who basically is is lo- is loyal to him as they would be their brother. Do we have a sense of the timeline on exactly when this might th- this uh, nomination might arrive? No, I mean people were people were thinking that the sessions one the firing would come sooner rather than later. Obviously, it, it came a day after the midterm, so I I I think he would rather do it soon, but. I guess some of it will depend on on, on Whitaker and his role. You got to remember, Trump has a lot of uh, jobs to fill in addition to the cabinet. His, you know, as we talk about these Democratic investigations coming down, he he has a, a barren uh, counsel's office right now that he needs to work on filling as well because they're going to be spending their time uh, re- responding to subpoena requests. All right. Well, Chris and Charlie, that actually makes for a, a good transition to our next data point, this talk about the, the Senate and the degree to which Trump does or does not have breathing room there right now. Our next data point is four, and that is uh, potentially uh, the the advantage that Republicans could go into the next Congress with in the Senate with a 54-seat majority if things 
turn out the way they're going right now. That's with the caveat of uh, Rick Scott has a very narrow lead in the Florida Senate race, which is going to be subject to a recount. Martha McSally has a lead in Arizona's Senate race, uh, where they're still counting ballots. Neither of those races called yet, obviously. But then there were flips for Republicans in Indiana, North Dakota, and Missouri on Tuesday night. Democrats grabbed one back by flipping uh, the Republican-held seat in Nevada. All that adds up to uh, a, a potential for a 54-seat Republican majority. And we're going to use that as a jumping-off point now to talk about the Senate and its role as a staging ground for 2020. Let's bring in James Arkin, who covered the Senate races for us this year. James, good to see you. Good to be here. And on the line from Chicagoland, we have national political correspondent Natasha Karecki. Natasha, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. So, James, I want to start with you. What was the GOP strategy for how to make the most of this Senate map that we have spent the last two years covering? And and how did it go? Uh so the strategy was sort of twofold. Uh, first, uh, obviously, they had 10 races in states that President Trump won in 2016 that had Democratic incumbents. They decided very early on to narrow the focus. Mitch McConnell uh, you know, says, don't fall in love with the map. Uh, and it became pretty clear pretty quick that states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin were not going to be competitive. And so they narrowed their focus into the states that he won most overwhelmingly. And then they really rode along with Trump. Uh, you know, the president went to visit these states uh, time and time again. Candidates uh, really aligned themselves with him and, and almost never broke with the president on anything. And they just relied on being able to turn out his voters in places like Missouri, Indiana, North Dakota, the three that they were able to flip, uh, you know, to kind of ride in President Trump's popularity in, in those states. So they they aligned very closely with him. And they also narrowed what they were looking at. They, they narrowed their expectations for what they would be able to flip and where their focus would be, which allowed them to really invest heavily in, in those states that they thought they had the best chance. And ultimately resulting in an expansion of the majority, which is really, uh, in, in a lot of ways, all that's, the, that, that's what's kind of helping Republicans see the silver lining on election night, right? They lost the House very decisively at this point. We're already up over, I think, the 31st Democratic House gain was just called a few minutes ago as we were here in the studio. The Democrats picked up seven governorships. Obviously, Republicans protected governorships in Florida and Ohio and Georgia and, and some other places. But, uh, but it's the Senate that's really kind of uh, clouding the picture a little bit. And as we talked about, it took place on a different playing field, but there's also it, you know, the the results matter. Yeah. I mean, if you talk to, to Democrats, they feel like they did a great job to limit their losses by, you know, saving West Virginia and Montana, uh, two states with moderate incumbents, uh, and and by protecting the those Midwest states. But I mean, the, the goal for Republicans all along was protect the majority and maybe expand it by a few uh, to give themselves a little bit of breathing room in terms of vote margin and to give themselves a little bit of breathing room in terms of, you know, keeping the Senate in, in 2020 and, and going forward. And so, you know, like you said, there's a difference between a 52-seat majority if, if Florida and Arizona both go Democrats' way or a 54-seat majority if they both go Republicans' way. But if Republicans end with a 53 or 54 majority, they, they've they done exactly what they set out to do, which is protect and slightly expand their majority and give themselves the breathing room that they need. Charlie, your what's your overarching take on the the how how the Senate kind of fits into the what we saw on election night? Well, I mean, I, to me, it's just uh, it, it was a further expression of the way we vote now and, and the level of polarization that we nobody splits tickets anymore, and we're moving toward a system in which uh, 
every Senate, every state will have senators that align themselves with the presidential party. Uh, we saw that in 2016, where I think every six, every, in every Senate race, uh, every state voted uh, with the same candidate that they voted for at the national level uh, in the presidential election, and we're moving in that direction. We saw that the other day. That the president, um, you know, had great success in the red states, uh, ousted some members who might have otherwise been in pretty good shape, paid attention to their to their uh, home turf. Uh, he came in and really blew things up, and I think. Uh, that was my big takeaway from the Senate map, at least. With all that in mind, the Senate is now kind of changing positions from this this big midterm focus we've had on it. It's, it's becoming a staging ground, really, for a, a large number of Democratic candidates who are potential Democratic candidates, I should say, who may challenge Donald Trump in 2020. We've got Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Bernie Sanders. The list goes on. Natasha... You've been tracking this already. We know that the the 2020 race didn't just begin this week. It's been going on for a while, and and you've been writing about it. But can you talk to us about what the next stage is going to look like as a lot of these senators decide whether or not to pull the trigger and kind of make their moves in that direction in the next weeks and months? Right. I mean, who are we kidding? This did start months ago, didn't it? I think the midterms provided excellent cover for a lot of these the senators and other candidates, too, to, you know, go out, test the waters, talk to different crowds, try to raise some money for them and just sort of show their worth. Um, but, right, I mean, in, in the immediate, um, we had, you know, a great story Thursday. We had a great story um, about how the Senate would continue to be a staging ground for just to showcase some of these senators, much like what happened in the, the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, but as far as the the actual campaigns, um, I think what we're going to start seeing is people are starting to staff up. I mean, if the field is going to be as big as everyone's talking, it's like it's going to be. There's only going to be so many um, really, you know, top tier sort of, you know, how many great campaign finance directors will there be or, or, camp, or, or managers will there be. So I think everyone's trying to scoop up that talent. But as far as announcing, there's all this jockeying that, that we're going to see with that as well. When do you announce? Um, there's benefits perhaps for lesser-known names to, to maybe announce earlier. But then there's this whole game with uh, when do you file your campaign finance report. And um, Cider, David Cider's actually had a really good story about that as well, um, that some people might hold off on an actual, you know, they can announce later on and file later on so they have a more robust report. But we'll probably start seeing, like, you know, the whole exploratory committees start coming out. Um, you know, there'll be some buzz. But I, I think a lot, of, a lot of the big announcements might be happening um, after the new year. There, there was one, one thing you said I want to just dig into a little bit more, the, the kind of hiring up of staff. I mean, how long is it going to take for these people to start picking over the bones of some of the campaigns that, that just, you know, died a, a couple <laughs> days ago to, to like scavenge the, the, the people away for 2020? Is that happening already, essentially? Or that's incredible. Right. I think the calls started actually before when, when a lot of these people were going through, when you had Harrison Booker and so forth going through Iowa. I mean, they were they were meeting with these uh, down ballot um, staff members and they're already talking to them then and, and, you know, just sort of like, Hey, you know, I'm a nice guy. Wouldn't you like to work for me or advocate for me later on? I'm um, just sort of doing like intros. Um, but, but what I keep hearing from people is you better, you know, if you are serious and you want a good staff that you, you better talk to the staff now and then talk to your family later about if you're going to run or not lock people down when you can, if you want the best of the best to work for you. 
Chris, what's the what's the Trump campaign doing on that front? We've seen a, a, a really good drumbeat of stories from uh, Politico over the last couple of weeks about uh, the 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 kind of coming refocus on the campaign uh, from you know people who might be leaving the White House to to join it, or the reorganization of the campaign and the super PAC that are backing uh, Donald Trump uh, as as they immediately flip the switch from midterms to uh, presidential. Yeah, the president, um, a lot of the folks within the political shop, the political director, Bill Stepien, uh, the uh, public uh, liaison's office, a guy named Justin Clark, um, the uh, the spokeswoman in the, in the political shop, Jessica Ditto, a lot of these people uh, have been planning for a while um, to uh, to jump over to the campaign. They've been working really closely already with the campaign to set up this barrage of rallies that the president has had. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at the rallies, I know we've talked about this before, but all the signs are Donald Trump signs. Um, the uh, the tenor of the rallies um, is, is very much torqued toward him. So, you know, you can make the argument that from the first rally I think he had, which was in in Pennsylvania, to the, the last one he had before the, the eve of the midterms, um, they're all Donald Trump 2020 rallies already. And, you know, his <laughs> campaign has been up and running basically the whole time. It never really stopped. And uh, it will continue to this day. Uh, the question I have about his campaign now, I think that we all have, is like, what's it going to look like? You know, his first 2016 campaign was so unorthodox. When and you say look like, are you talking about the the message? The structure. The, okay. the structure. Uh, like, is it going to be the traditional, you know, it's certainly not going to be the several, however many thousand Hillary Clinton had in, in, in Brooklyn it doesn't need to be, is what the Trump folks say. You know, it can be all about him. It can be like a lot leaner. It can be the people who organize. You know, the the people who organize the rallies, and then um, he kind of has this loosely affiliated network of uh, of folks on the ground in these states that he'll continue to turn to. These are people who have like been flying with him on Air Force One when he goes back for midterm rallies. So he's got like a handful of sort of loyalists who are in each of these states on the ground already that they can turn to. Um, but again, like maybe he shifts gears. Maybe it does become a bigger operation. We have people who have been sort of asking the campaign manager, um, you know, what is this thing going to look like? Um, and that'll be something that I think will be answered in the, in the next few months. There's questions about the structure. Are there questions about the message at this point? I mean, should we expect anything different than what we've already seen from Trump in, in 2016 and that during the midterms about this laser focus on the I guess what we would call Trump's base, but some of that is is people who have not traditionally been in the Republican base, but Trump has kind of brought them into his corner. And is that going to continue or or should we expect to see something different? Yeah, that's the one thing with him that he he really dictates more than anyone else. Which right. is sort of you know, we talk a lot about him being his own communications director. He's also sort of his own campaign manager and strategist. So I think it'll depend I also kind of think if it'll depend on whether he does have sort of that one signature thing to point to that he did do with Democrats that could be sort of a crossover message. Uh, infrastructure now very much is sort of a punchline. But if there is anything that he could do where he crosses the aisle, that might be somewhere where he could, you know, pick up some stray voters that aren't part of his base. Um, but, we, you know, we talk about the places that he went over the midterm campaign. Those are very much the same places that he'll – uh, he'll be returning to, mm-hmm. and so not just the places he won, but we, and you, you've written about his. Uh, they, he wants to focus on Minnesota, and he visited some some kind of Trump country areas of Minnesota, and there's you know a few, a few other states out potentially there. potentially Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, th- there's a few, but we kind of know where he's going. We know what his playbook is. Essentially, the question is, does he does he does he go off of that in any way? And the thing that is, his folks are pointing to that I think some Democrats are certainly concerned about right now are um, two states in particular, Ohio and Florida. And um, if if he's able to to keep them, and um, and uh, which he's shown that you know he he is strong there based on the candidates he supported in the midterms, uh, you know that's going to be an issue for Democrats. Got it. All right. Plenty to look out for going forward. Thank you all for, for joining us to, to talk it through. Natasha, thank you. Thank you. And uh, James, thanks for coming in. Glad to be here. We got a big roundtable to say goodbye to. Chris, thank you very much for being here. Yes, thank you. And Charlie, thank you as always. Thank you, Scott. And a big thank you to all of you listening to this episode as well. Our show is produced this week by Jenny Ahmed with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like the Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Can't wait to talk to you again next week. 